and we had to really undo our perceptions about who is valuable in society and who is quote unquote productive. Like we have inherent value, despite what the system tells us exists within us. We have inherent value. Facts do not have opinions. Just don't let perfection be the enemy of the good. Self-love is really about self-respect and acceptance. Welcome to The Whole View. I'm Stacey Toth of Real Everything. I'm here each week to dive deeper into how we can find happiness and health inside and out through self-love, body positivity, and discovering new ways to be our best selves. Before we get started, a reminder, this podcast is for general education purposes, and we always suggest seeking appropriate treatment with licensed professionals accordingly. I am super excited to introduce you to today's guest, Imani. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you for having me. I was introduced to you through the ASDA, which is the Association for Size, Diversity, and Health Conference. And I had the privilege of listening to a lot of incredible speakers throughout my career. And I mean, Ellabelle Smith to Glennon Doyle to even a private conversation with Gwyneth Paltrow. And I don't mean to send the bar like unrealistically high today for our listeners, but your talk at the ASDA conference was one of the most influential for my own personal growth that I can remember. Mm -hmm. And you note yourself as a comms director, disability blogger, content creator, public speaker, model, and actress on your Insta bio, but could you share a little bit more about yourself for our listeners to get a feel of, of what they're going to be in for? Oh, yeah. I mean, so I, my name is Imani Barber, and I have cerebral palsy from the waist down. I'm a Black woman. I was raised with a disability for my entire life, and I just, I, I like to pull at the threads and, like, really kind of unravel how our society works and how Basically, since our like our own ideas about ourselves are not like formed in a vacuum. Now they're influenced by other ideas about productivity, value, and what we should be doing with our lives. So that's kind of what I talk about a lot of the time. Yeah, it was super impactful for me to kind of I, I've been doing a lot of work on perfectionism, but then to kind of take that one step further and to think about productivity and where that came from. So I'm excited that for us to talk about that a little bit today. Before we do, I think maybe we need to just kind of baseline for listeners. I'm a big believer in language allowing us to have greater understanding in general. So can we start by defining ableism in your words? What do you, how do you define ableism? So personally, I like the definition of any interpersonal, societal, and structural preferential treatment for non-disabled bodies, over disabled bodies. And this could take the form of infantilization. This is, you know, the social model of disability and understanding how society disables us more, and a lot of times more so than our diagnoses. And just that is my formative definition. Yeah, that's what I usually tell people. I loved that you expanded on that earlier also with the idea of a disability being defined as one or more of our daily activities being impeded. And so when we think about that in the context of how you're defining ableism, we're able to break things down to essentially a quarter of the population 
have a disability, which I don't think a lot of people would kind of put themselves in that box before kind of fully understanding how that all comes into to play. Yeah. So the, the definition of a disability underneath the Americans with Disabilities Act, like you said, is one or more impairments that impact somebody's ability to do one or more daily tasks. That's like their very baseline definition. And people have this weird idea that there's like a list, like this exclusionary list of disabilities that qualify and don't qualify. But asthma qualifies, migraines qualify, like things people go through every single day qualify. And it really alarms people because they're like, oh no, because it's not just the idea of being having a disability, it's the social implications that a lot of people cannot contend with. And so when I tell people, yeah, what you have is technically a disability. They're, they're like, they fight me on it. I'm like, I'm, I mean, like, you could think, I, I can't make you feel one way or another about it, but you very much so do have a disability. And I think anytime we have one of those kind of like visceral reactions to something like, no, I don't, like, what what is that rooted in? You know, like, why are you so opposed to being associated with like, yes, if you wear glasses, you are being impeded on a daily basis by, you know, the limitations that you have without glass, which definitely wasn't what my understanding was before hearing you speak. And I think the other thing that kind of like really that the whole conference in general, I think was great for me because I had been on this path of like defining healthism as someone who has been in the health community for a decade and sold multiple bestselling books and all this kind of stuff to then realize my own participation in diet culture and healthism and wanting to not participate in that anymore requires a lot of unlearning. And I think what you talked about and also Hunter Shackleford, who spoke as well, brought up incredible things about glorifying health and that being kind of like the, let's leave that as the definition of of healthism for a second. If we're just saying like, we're going to glorify health and put people in that box. And then anybody who isn't healthy is less than, right? So it's it's harming not just the fat community, it's also harming the disabled community and those people who do not have the means to afford organic, grass-fed, you know, high-quality healthcare, like all these kinds of things that come into the box of health. Like, it's one thing to say, like, I personally want to feel my best and I'm going to achieve my own health, which we're going to talk about in a minute. It's another to say, like, that is the expectation for society and we're going to glorify it and we're going to belittle people who don't. So I, I think as someone who is no longer trying to, I'm, I'm actively trying not to judge others as I once, once did, which takes a lot of, you know, reframing and remapping of my brain to stop myself and thought process and to kind of like walk back. It did hit hard for me in that moment. And it's, you know, it, it's helped a lot in terms of defining how I think about that. I'm wondering if you can share more about what that experience has been like for you, because I think it's also fascinating when you share, especially on social or different ways, when you share an interaction that you've had where someone is not seeing it (laughs) the way that your lived experience is from all this definition. And I think it will help some of the listeners maybe have some of those aha moments that I definitely had. So in terms of like unlearning this idea around health, I grew up like very much so in diet culture. Like I I was on my first diet at nine years old because my parents are very much of the belief that any sort of weight would negatively affect my disability. And so like my weight was a huge deal. And, you know, there was a lot of 
no, you can't eat this and that. Or like, I would be watched literally all the time eating. And at, at a certain point, I was like, just leave me alone. So when I started college, like I completely had a breakdown because I didn't know what to do. You know, most of my life, I was told I would give to overcome your disability, like make sure it's less apparent, make sure people see it less because they'll judge you, that you won't have a seat at the table. And then, you know, I kind of failed out of my first or second year of college and couldn't really reconcile what people have been t- saying about me because I was I was a perfect example of somebody who worked against the perceptions of my disability in order to fit in and to, to seem healthy and active and all these things. And it failed me because what... When I went to college, I actually needed help. I actually needed like genuine help with accommodations and accessibility. And I didn't know how to ask for it because I've been told you have to interact with the world in this way. Otherwise, they're going to completely cast you out of it. So I failed out. And then my parents made me go to therapy. Like the condition for me applying to schools and them helping me financially with school after I dropped out was to actually go to therapy. And then I could return to school. And even that was kind of messed up because... I, I was lucky enough to have a black therapist. She was lovely, but like I had to explain things about disability to her all the time. You know, there's all these interactions that I have on, my, on a daily basis where people will stare at me and come up to me and be like, what's wrong with you? Like, what happened to you? Like, what, you know, can I pray over you? And I, I was trying to explain to my therapist, like she, was, she had this definition for anxiety that said something along the lines of, when your brain overreacts to the moment before you, she's like, are people staring or are, is it your brain telling you they're staring? And I had to tell, tell her, I was like, no, they're staring. Like, they're like, oh, she's like, do people actually think these things about you as you're walking by? Or like, are you, is your brain making it up for you? And I was like, no, they tell me. Like, they'll come up to tell me like, that they would rather die than be me. Or, like, these are just daily interactions. And so like therapy worked, but to a certain extent, but then I started engaging with disability discourse and understanding like my experience, the things that were impeding my daily life were beyond me. Like they weren't like, people were interacting with me on an interpersonal basis, but the perceptions upon which they were acting upon were far greater than I could control in that moment. And they gave me a lot of freedom because we have all these perceptions around health, ability, and like, you know, health is wealth and all this BS around how we are supposed to be socialized around disability. And I was inherently going to be left out of that. And nobody told me, nobody really prepared me for having to understand my own body and its positioning in the world. And I had to learn that on my own and through the community that I have with other disabled people. And we have this idea that, you know, health is a morality issue. Health is, you know, you wanting to actually want to be a participant in society rather than understanding that we build up these walls and these barriers for disabled people and chronically ill people and fat people to keep them out of society because they're not seen as productive or valuable. I think it's it helps be relatable to the, the productive or valuable part. I feel like we've also done kind of a lot of skimming about your own lived experience. So I'm glad you kind of shared some of those unbelievable and traumatic things that people feel comfortable saying to you and how much more difficult that makes your own personal acceptance and well-being, right? Like this idea of the science that's that shows that fat phobia and stigma and discrimination actually causes more harm to fat health than being fat itself. Yeah. I imagine that there are similar results for 
the harm that you're experiencing from your disability in terms of the stress and the harm that that puts on you from people not being accepting, but also just being rude, like just not even understanding the harm, or maybe they do understand and just not treating you as an equal and being able to hold their tongue or whatever it is. Well, I think why well, I always try to tell people that whether you're born with your disability or you acquire a disability, like one of the very first things to go, if you start, especially if you start advocating for yourself, is you cease to be seen as a reliable narrator of your own story and your own needs and your own health. And literally nobody will believe you because if you talk about your health too much, if you talk, you know, the ways in which you are discriminated against and cast out, then you are somebody who wants, who has a dis- disabled mindset. You actually want to be disabled. You're more disabled than you are because you're actually just complaining about all the ways in which you don't fit in rather than working to fit in. And so people interact with me like that on a daily basis, even in doctor's offices where doctors are, will talk to, you know, I bring my mother with me. Sometimes the doctor's appointments, they'll talk to my mother over me because they don't think that I understand. Or they'll hand my mom the paperwork to sign. And I'm like, I'm, I'm my own guardian here. And that's fairly often and very common for disabled people. And this lack of autonomy that people see in us can be very dangerous about where we want to live. Like it's, it's hard to, it's hard to minimize like the, the impact that the health community has on disabled people, because doctors think that like the writing in our chart you know, just a casual observation about our cognitive ability or our disability. And they can actually determine where we live. They can determine in some states whether we vote. They can determine, you know, what services we get, like what accommodations we get. Like they don't understand, like they have the ability of of controlling very minute details of our everyday life. And so when people don't believe you about your own experiences, they don't understand just how powerful they are because they are automatically seen as, a, as an authority over us, which can be extremely dangerous. Yeah, I imagine that being scary. Obviously, I can't possibly fully even fathom what that is like. And at the same time, having my own lived experiences of feeling like I'm in the control of somebody else making decisions over my body, n- not being the utmost of things that make me feel uncomfortable about life. I think the other thing that kind of is relevant to me as I was listening to you speak is this idea that you speak to health being different for everybody, that like you being healthy is going to look very different from somebody else who has completely different body being in in their health. And this idea that I think you said how your health manifests is unique and how your health looks will be different than someone else's. And I think for me, this really kind of hit because I can think of so many examples from the perspective of someone born with a heart condition is always going to have that difference and is not going to be able to do physically some of the demands of somebody who doesn't, for example, right? Like, or someone with type one diabetes is is going to be impacted their whole life again like has nothing to do with no matter what kind of health choices they make if you have type 1 diabetes like it's not going to change and yet we're all deserving of our own lived experience to live our full life not defined by you know a, a parent that isn't a guard or, or, you know, someone who isn't our guardian or a healthcare professional or whatever it is. And I think there are so many 
shoulds by society that make those assumptions or assume that those people, whoever they are, who might be disabled, should be healthier, should want that. And I think of that really kind of like going into a box of ableism and also like not understanding individual and unique differences. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm wondering, <laughs> I I also, as you were talking, was remembering you saying like, I've never overcome my disability, but I've overcome the desire to slap someone <laughs> every single day of your life. And I'm wondering if for for those people who are maybe like having these aha moments about how they're participating in the system of oppression that is healthism, like how can we help them parse that out and continue to do the unlearning? Well, I think we also have to unlearn white supremacy. Like, because a lot of our, our perceptions around health have to do around race and class. And when we think about health, healthism we think about people having like this very clear choice between what is healthy and what is unhealthy nobody has that clear of a choice they just don't when we talk about things like food deserts people who don't have access to grocery stores in their neighborhood or public transportation to get fruits and vegetables you know that leads to you know disability and the chronic illness when we have people who live next to highways who are in chronically underfunded areas of our society, they, they're more likely to have disabilities. And when you think, when you really think hard about our perceptions around who is actually trying and who is actually not, a lot of it is just like, it's just an allegory for poverty and race. You know, like who's the quote unquote a welfare queen or who's wanting to just sit high on the hog and take all these resources that, you know, we could be using for other things like wars, I guess. And so when we talk about healthism, when we talk about ableism, we have to understand that our society is designed this way. So we think these things about people. Because if we think that they're not trying, we think of them as disposable to the grander picture of society. You know, people who don't try to have value, or who don't try to be productive, do they deserve to live? Like, these are the, like, that is the end result of all these questions that we are continuing to ask. Do they deserve to, to just live? And we have to really undo our perceptions about who is valuable in society and who is quote-unquote productive. Like, we have inherent value, despite what the system tells us exists within us. We have inherent value. And so I don't really see, you know, I feel like people have this perception of when they get to this point of enlightenment that they won't have these knee-jerk reactions or these knee-jerk perceptions about people are, are existing along these stereotypes. But the reality is, is that you always want to give yourself a second chance to, to like, reevaluate the situation. Because you're, because we are taught from birth these perceptions and these stereotypes. So, like, it's going to take longer than like a few weeks listening to podcasts or reading books or things like that. You're going to actually have to be like, give yourself a little bit of like grace to be like, hey, that was weird of me to think that. Let me go. Let me just reevaluate for a second about why I think that. You know, I've judged this person based on the fact they have type two diabetes. They must deserve it. But wait, why do I think that? I don't know their situation. I don't know them you know, giving yourself a chance to like roll back, like take a step back and look at people in a different light, providing both yourself and them grace to be the narrators of their own story and speak to their own experiences and understanding that if you don't know their experiences or their story, you don't have enough information to make any judgment. 
even if you could if it, even if it is your duty to make a judgment you made you don't have enough information so yeah i think it's understanding that second chance and like giving yourself that extra moment of time to really evaluate what is going on in any situation i i love the idea of self-reflection and i think that it's a good starting point for being a better ally and i think one of the things that you said that really started that for me, as you've mentioned, is this idea of productivity. Mm -hmm. And you asked, why do I see myself as lazy when I need to rest or take a break? Like that was something that immediately, like I am one of those people who just, I set myself up to constantly be busy. And if I'm not the highest performing possible, I'm super competitive. If I'm not like, you know, achieving the top of everything, then what am I even living for? And I, and I say it out loud and it sounds ridiculous, right? Like once I start to unpack it, I'm like, what, what does that matter? What do I care? That's only based around other people's perception of me, which then when I start to unpack that, as you pointed out, like is rooted in this idea that as someone who has been fat my whole life, I felt like I needed to prove that I wasn't the stereotype, right? Like that I was set aside from this idea that people have as you employers, for example, can discriminate against someone's weight and make an assumption that that person is not going to be efficient or, you know, a high performer at their job and therefore not hire them. It's, it's crazy to me that that's a thing still. And at the same time, clearly is so ingrained in my own thought process that I felt like I needed to be this super high achiever, high performer to prove to people like, but not me. And then I'm like, but that's putting somebody else in a box that I don't mean to be putting them in because I'm making it about myself. And so it helped me in terms of like, am I performing productivity so that no one sees me differently or less than, in which case, if I'm feeling that judgment it is a judgment that I'm putting on someone else. This is another thing that I realized, right? Is like, if you are constantly thinking that someone is judging you, it's it's because it's already in your thought process from judging others. And so it's made me more hyper aware as I find myself thinking about others in any, or myself in any sort of capacity being like, no, what am I, what am I thinking about others in this? Yeah. So yeah, go, go for it. Cause I'm just, it was, it, it's really huge for me. And I'm sure that there are a lot of different people from all walks of life who can identify with this in a way to help them understand the, how we are participating in that ableism and in healthism by these behaviors that we're putting on ourselves. Yeah. It reminds me a lot of the conversation that happens a lot of times between type one diabetics and type two. And if you are, if you're type one, you're more likely to have been born with your diabetes and it'd be an, I think it almost like an autoimmune response. Whereas with type two diabetes, it's usually acquired over time. And there's like this perception that type two diabetes, like people deserve the diabetes because they didn't eat right. They didn't exercise. They didn't do all the right things. Whereas type one is kind of like this fall from grace from an, from a normally health, what would be an otherwise healthy life. And you'll see a lot of people present type one as like, I'm really active, but you know, I, I have this type one. I'm doing all these things, but I have type one, but I'm not like those type two type of people. And it's, it's like that kind of like crabs in a barrel type of, type of mentality where it's like, we're both paying exorbitant prices for insulin. So, you know, 
what is really the issue that we're having here? But I think there's a lot of times where we want to work in comparison to the, like this phantom idea of the perfect person. Like if we make sure that we are overcoming and productive at all times, then people can't have an excuse to isolate us or to cast us out or to de deny our value or to society or to the room or to the conversation, what have you. That if we work at all times, if we are ex exhausting ourselves, people will see that exhaustion as merit to have a voice, merit to be a part of the room. So I think that a lot of people want, they want to be seen as valuable because I mean, we as a society, we, we dispose of people very easily. It's like, it's very simple for us to just be like, well, if you know, if you don't want to be a part of society, then we can't make you, but you're going to have to work to be here. You're going to have to work to matter. You're going to have to work to be cared about, to just exist alongside me. And we have to fundamentally change the way we talk to people about why they matter and why they deserve to be a part of the society they want to be a part of. Yeah. It's very hard because it's very hard to learn. Like for me, that comes in the form of me walking fast everywhere I go for no reason, even though I'm not rushing. I'm not late. I, well, I am kind of late, but I'm not as late as I could be. And I'm rushing and like under the fear that somebody behind me is getting, is getting slowed down by me walking slow in front of them. And so I'll like walk to the far side of the hallway and make sure that people can go around me. And, you know, I walk faster that if somebody is stuck behind me I can go faster and nine times out of ten there's like nobody behind me there's nobody rushing I just have this fear that my disability is going to mean something horrible to somebody else yeah and you know also walking like very very like almost with a paranoid nature because I've had people you know follow me around just to see what I what it's like for me to walk and or to ask me what's wrong with me so it's a it's a learned behavior but I'm trying to unlearn it every day This podcast is sponsored by Cozy Earth. If you haven't tried them yet, now is the time with your exclusive 35% off code and their softest fabric guarantee. Cozy Earth sheets are literally the best ever. I recognize they're expensive and with the whole view code, I do think they are worth it. I discovered these while looking for sheets to help with my night sweats, but Gosh, do I wish I'd found them sooner. It's like climbing into a literal cloud to sleep at night. And somehow this magical 100% viscose from bamboo fabric is sustainable and ethical while regulating temperature and wicking away moisture to keep you comfy all night. Whether you overheat from a partner who radiates heat like a furnace, why? Why is this a thing? Or you get hormonal night sweats or simply just want the best night's sleep. It's possible with Cozy Earth. I no longer wake up in a puddle. Sincerely, these sheets are better than those at a luxury hotel. Cozy Earth has made Oprah's favorite things list four years in a row for good reason. And they're now on Stacy's holiday gifting list because I have tried all the things and am obsessed not just the bedding, but I actually used the same code you get to get new loungewear and clothing. And the size inclusive items are crafted from the same responsibly sourced, breathable and luxurious material as their bedding. I plan to wear my new hoodie dress with leggings and sustainable sneakers all autumn long. Plus, I love that they have a 10 year warranty on all their products. Cozy Earth provided an exclusive offer for you listeners today. 35% off site-wide when you use code WHOLEVIEW. 
Go to CozyEarth.com and use code WHOLEVIEW for 35% off site-wide. That's C-O-Z-Y Earth.com, code WHOLEVIEW. This podcast is sponsored by Shopify. It's the sound of another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. As a consumer, I love the ease of using Shopify, which has thousands of integrations and third-party apps from on-demand printing to accounting to advanced chatbots and beyond. Shopify supports small business entrepreneurs with resources once reserved for big businesses, allowing you to discover endless possibility. Shopify is tirelessly reinventing tools for growth for millions of businesses, helping them succeed every day. Discover inspiration. Shopify believes in liberating commerce for all because entrepreneurship has the power to drive communities forward and commerce can be a force for good. Discover your possible. Shopify unlocks the opportunity of your business to more people every day. Every 28 seconds, an entrepreneur like you makes their first sale on Shopify. I love that Shopify supports all businesses, allowing a journey of endless possibility and accepts all major payment methods. Go to shopify.com slash wholeview, all lowercase, to start your free trial to get full access to Shopify's entire suite of features. Grow your business with Shopify today. Go to shopify.com slash wholeview right now. Shopify.com slash wholeview. Yeah, that's a, a really good analogy, like someone walking behind you and how I'm I'm assuming nine out of 10 people would be more concerned about, because I know I'm the same way, mm-hmm. the person behind them and what they might be doing to irritate or upset that person mm-hmm. versus what is best for them in that moment. And societally, I do think that it's set up like that. I also just wonder, like, I don't know, I'm, I'm loving Gen Z and Gen Alpha having access to the internet and like coming together as a community and starting to say things like, no, I'm not going to participate in that sort of stuff anymore. Because it's, it's definitely, I think, back generations to some of the insane things that we did that made no sense as a community in terms of like, was best for nobody, but we did those things anyway, or what we do to the planet. Like, why are we continuing to still make single use plastic, even though we know it's killing the planet? Like, but we're doing it anyway, because that's what's always been done, right? Versus, let me stop for a moment and say, why am I trying to walk fast right now? I don't, I don't have anywhere to be and I'm enjoying the walk. And like, if someone needs to walk around me, that's on them versus like feeling responsible. And it's this idea of like, who are you performing for was something that you asked that really like has had me over the past, I don't know when that conference was, but I'm going to say six months, like, you know, working really hard towards achieving something. And then literally saying to myself, like, who am I doing this for? Am I doing, am I doing it for me and for my family? Because there's a benefit to that. And, and I'm making an intentional choice that, that's what I want to do? Or am I doing it because I'm like being pushed by the societal idea that I should, which I, you know, I hate the word should, or that, you know, I have to prove something to someone so they don't think negatively or judge me or whatever. 
Yeah, I think a lot of our, there's a lot of our lives that are just straight up performance from working in the office to walking fast or things like that. It's, it's, it's kind of like pushing around the peas on the plate to make sure that people see like, oh, something, there's some action happening there. There's some, there's something happening where that if the people don't look too closely at like the systems that we built that don't actually work. And I think there's a lot of control that happens in that performance too, because we're performing for somebody. We're performing for society. We're performing for our bosses. We're performing for our neighbors. Just to see, just to show like, this is, this, these are just the motions of what society requires of me in this moment whether or not it actually works or is fulfilling or actually can improve my life in any way. It's just for the motion. And we waste so much of our time on these things that don't really matter. We don't really, as a society, we don't really have passions. As Western societies, we don't really have passions. We don't really have dreams or goals. By and large, people are just trying to get from day to day. We never take the time to pause and think, like, what do we actually want our lives to look like? or be about, or to center, like to center one another. I mean, that's intentional. That's intentional because, you know, we think about what pause actually means. The pandemic is a perfect example of several social movements coming to prominence because we have had time to think. We've had time to think about like what ableism means to us, about what the labor movement can look like, what, what motherhood can look like when we are in proximity to our children, or what parenthood can look like for anybody who you know, is able to work from home and raise their kids at the same time. You know, there's so many systems that we just keep running because it's a performance. But in reality, there's so many other ways of being that we discount because they're not productive to the billionaires that, you know, keep us all employed, I guess. Yeah, I love when you said you can hustle and grind until you collapse at the end of your life. And then what what will have that what will that have meant or what will your health have meant at that point right like if if you if we never take time to enjoy the life that we're living to truly find a passion to truly spend time meaningful time with those that you know we love or care about in our lives then what is it for? It's, you know, for all the personal possessions that you own at the end of your life. And then someone has to clean out your house, or is it for the fact that, you know, no one will say, Oh, that person was lazy. Like, and, and if they do, why do we care about that? You know? Yeah. It, it also kind of drives this idea for me of kind of going back to the idea of, you know, health looks different for everyone, but this, this idea of like, what really does health mean? And, you know, especially as it relates to people of size, but really to anybody, you know, we know that it's more often wrong than correct. The B, the BMI is going to predict inaccuracies more often than it's going to predict accuracies because then people can be unhealthy and overweight people can be healthy. And so if that's the measure that we're using, it doesn't work. And yet we're still feel filled with a society of people who say, this, I mean, the same line over and over. I'm like, really, can you get a new line? Like stop promoting obesity. You know, you're, you're encouraging people to be unhealthy. It's like my, my existence encourages those things. And I'm sure it's the same, you know, it's the same way with you only that much more because then people are going to put the shoulds and the expectations of health on you, as you described earlier in life from your parents saying, you have to do it this way or else, you know, you're not going to be the, the word that kept coming to mind for me was a contributing member of society. That's, that's a phrase that 
I definitely heard a lot growing up and have even used with my kids that I no longer will use with my kids, right? Where I'm like, the one, the one job that I have as a parent is to make sure that you're a contributing member of society. Well, no. I mean, if my ch- children got into an accident or developed some sort of disability and they're still living a happy life, but not able to, you know, contribute to society, and I'm using quotation marks, then I will have succeeded as a mother if they can still find joy, if they can still live a life that they feel good about. And that can look a lot of different ways. And I think definitely that phrase and that mindset comes from being rooted in ableism and healthism and this idea of if you're not a contributing member of society, then you're a drain on society and should be cast aside, as you mentioned. Right. Well, I think one of the things we need to clarify too is like when we say contributing to the member of society, when people say that to us, what they're actually saying is a contributing member to capitalism, like a contributing member to the machine. A contributing member to society is somebody that builds community with one another, regardless of what their paycheck looks like or their or their like capacity for to prove to prove ableness in any given moment. Like for me, like we 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 continuously like as a communicator, I see it most often because it drives me up the freaking wall. Which is like we'll we'll get like one one catchphrase and then mold it into several different meanings. That, that detract from its original meaning and then kind of weaponize it against other people. And that like that phrase contributing to society is one of those phrases where it's like, there are so many ways to contribute. Like just being, you know, in community with people is what matters. Like feeding people, making sure they have resources to, to you know, live and go to school and, and making sure that families are kept together. And, you know, elderly neighbor, neighbors feel like they're, they're able to talk with people and, and, you know, age, age with kindness in their lives. Like that's, that's contributing to society. Like not this idea that, oh, I have to constantly keep the economy going. Like I constantly have to pay taxes and I could care less about that. Like it's, it's about making sure that when we contribute to society, we're making sure that people are contributing what they can to society. And sometimes that means it's an online discourse for people who may not be able to leave their homes it could be delivering meals. Like it's all different types of ways. And people, people boil it down to this idea like, oh, if you can't contribute to my pocketbook in any sort of way, you don't have any value to me. And that's just wrong. <laughs> that's just wrong. And we need to step away from this very monetary idea of value and start talking about value um, and the intangibles and what we bring to the table. And I wish people saw that more. They just, a lot of people just don't want to at a certain extent. Absolutely agree. And nothing I can add to that. If you had a microphone, I'd tell you to drop it. This podcast is sponsored by Indeed, which is where I personally recommend posting your resume as well as posting job opportunities if you're in search of quality candidates. I mentioned Cole got his very first job. Yay, I'm so proud of him. And you know I had him on Indeed. They have so many more time-saving tools now than they did way back in the olden days when I got my career break with them. And virtual interview options save you time. You can message, schedule, interview, top talent seamlessly all in one place. Indeed saves you headaches, interview virtually with no downloads, plugins, or purchases, and you can do it all in one place with Indeed. After using Indeed's virtual interviews, most employers said it saved them days of hiring time, according to Indeed Data US. 
Indeed is the number one source of hires in the U.S., according to Talent Nest, with 73% of U.S. online job seekers searching for jobs on Indeed each month, according to Comscore. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites searching for candidates with the right skills, with Indeed's instant match, over 80% of employers get quality candidates whose resume on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job, according to Indeed Data US. In the minute I've been talking to you, 16 hires were made on Indeed, according to Indeed Data Worldwide. Indeed knows when you're growing your business, you have to make every dollar count. That's why when you sponsor a job, you only pay for quality applications from resumes in their database matching your job description. Visit indeed.com slash whole view to start hiring now. Just go to indeed.com slash whole view. Indeed.com slash whole view. Terms and conditions apply. Cost per application pricing not available for everyone. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast is brought to you by Ava Jane's Kitchen, Kalima Sea Salt, the best salt I have ever tasted. And they're offering you your first bag free. No catch, just pay shipping and taste it for yourself. I didn't realize that I could have a favorite salt that I loved this much, but you'll probably recall from episode five earlier this season that I confessed my adoration for briny flavors and have very high standards. I especially love that Kalima is harvested from the Kalima salt flats in Mexico, supporting the local Salineros, and it's free of ocean-borne plastics. Did you know that a National Geographic study found that 90% of table salt in our food is laced with tiny pieces of plastic garbage, microplastics from ocean trash? Of course, I'm going to try to avoid that if possible. And I am shockingly surprised how amazingly flavorful Kalima salt is. Imagine a salt texture like kosher salt with the vibrant minerally flavors of sea salt. I have since started referring to it as my special salt and keep a bag on my desk to flavor my lunches. I keep one on the dining table and I filled the cellar in the kitchen for cooking and everybody has become a big fan. And the other day I actually made cookies and sprinkled some on top. Er muggered. They are so delicious and the super crunchy texture makes an amazing finishing salt. The umami is so good. I really hope you'll try this. It's one of those underground finds that I know is going to catch on and I don't want you to miss out before their annual limited batch is gone. So listeners, get your first bag for free from wholeviewsalt.com. You don't need a code, just go to wholeviewsalt.com to redeem your free bag of Kalima sea salt. So I like to always leave listeners with something positive, actionable suggestions that they can bring into their lives to try to make a difference. And I'd love if you could expand on a quote of yours in some sort of way to to bring this about and manifest in their lives, which is that understanding yourself, bettering yourself and resting should be the goal. So if, you know, we're trying to to break the machine, so to speak, that you spoke of earlier and be better members of society, what does what does that look like in action? 
It is, so being better members of society is checking with people around you. It doesn't have to be this grand gesture for like on social media with thousands of people. It could just be checking on your neighbor. Understanding the self is making sure that you are unlearning your own internalized ableism about the ways in which you move about your world, your society, your families. Making sure that you just try not to cast judgment on your desire for rest and restore and restoration as well as other people's rest and restoration a lot of times what we internalize we project and making sure you're constantly educating yourself there are tons of disabled writers like alice wong kia brown there's a disability visibility story collection and there's tons of dis different disability writers and advocates make sure you're engaging with their work um, and just take time to actually practice self-care and i really dislike the commercialization of self-care Self-care does not mean like bubble baths and like eucalyptus in the shower. It has a lot, of, like people think it has a lot to do with different like types of water. Um, but like a lot of times it just means like evaluating and reevaluating your boundaries around rest and people's access to you and your ability to constantly overwork yourself, making sure you're actually understanding yourself enough to set boundaries for yourself around your productivity. But that can be very painful, especially if you're somebody whose value is giving you purchase to different rooms and tables that you want to be a part of. Actually taking rest can be very difficult, but understanding it is necessary to move forward and stop passing judgment on other people's health. Like I said, it's just, it's a counterproductive. There's a lot more systems at play than just looking at somebody. You actually have to understand these perceptions from the ground up rather than just at face value. Yeah. I love all of those ideas. And I definitely want to say as someone who has created a lot more of those boundaries myself and actively brought more rest and downtime and family time into my life intentionally. It is actually helped me have seats at the tables that I want to have more easily because I value my time and other people then start to respect and value that time versus just assuming they can have a view of everything, right? Like this idea of productivity is in the corporate world, it's actually like a joke, but it's not funny at all that those who work hard are punished because if you're good at your job and you're efficient at it, then they're, go they're going to give you more work. They're not going to give it to the person who, you know, is less efficient and not doing it. And so if you're good at your job, you actually get punished with more and more and more versus like, hey, you did a great job. Go take a vacation. Like that's not no. how it works in corporate America. So I just want to, you know, say as someone who's kind of like pulled back from a lot of that and realigned my life, I now have a lot more people in my life who say things to me that start with, if you have time, like, you know what I mean? Like the first thing that someone says is like, I respect that you're going to draw a boundary and I'm asking something beyond that boundary. And I respect that you might say no. And that tells me that I've created an environment and a community and peers and, and people that I work with that are respecting me being at the table when I have time to be at the table. And like, they want me at the table, but they also know that like, sometimes I'm going to be at the table with my kids and that's okay too. Yeah. So I, I love that idea of self-care because it, it definitely has 
changed my life for the better, for sure. So, and speaking of you speaking and all different kinds of things, I want to point listeners to your website, crutchesandspice.com. You speak as an educator and are available. I would have loved, (laughs) I don't know what corporate job is going to bring you in, but boy, would I have loved to have heard some of this stuff when I was still part of that world, because I do genuinely think that as we engage as part of society we don't have to completely unravel everything like as much as we would love that to kind of shake everything up and start fresh that's pretty unrealistic and at the same time I do think that there is opportunity to create some of those healthy mindsets and healthy boundaries with within those structures so whether you're you know a health practitioner that's listening whether you are an hr manager i strongly reaching strongly recommend reaching out to amani and i'm going to put links in the show notes obviously but you can also find her at crutches underscore and spice on both instagram and tiktok I follow you. I enjoy following you. And then also you're on Twitter. I can't, I, there's, I have to draw a line. I can't do it, but you're Amani underscore Barbarin. Is that how you pronounce your last name? Yeah. Perfect. On Twitter as well. So we'll put all those in the show notes for people. Is there anything else I forgot? No, but thank you for having me. I greatly appreciate it. Of course. So we will be sharing what we really thought on a an X-rated, ver- well, not X-rated, that sounds wrong, an R-rated, X- expletive version of whatever that soapbox is over on Patreon. And then you can also, if you enjoy the show that we create and produce ourselves, the Patreon is a great way to support the show, but so is leaving a review and hitting the follow or subscribe button on however you're listening so that others can find us as well. And we'll make sure that we put a link to a list of resources in the show notes for you as well. I know, um, Amani, you mentioned a couple of educators that people can follow. I know I mentioned one and I already found a couple of resources that you shared in social that I think would be helpful for people. So we'll put all those in the show notes for you listeners to find. And we appreciate your willingness to be open to growth through your own personal change. Know that no one is perfect, but in listening, learning and unlearning, we can all become better versions of ourselves. Thanks for tuning in. the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.